is taken from the book of St. Matthew, chapter 14, verses 22 to 33. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But by this time, the boat, battered by the waves, was far from the land, for the wind was against them. And early in the morning, he came walking toward them on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat, started walking on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he noticed the strong wind, he became frightened, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Would you pray with me? Our God, we thank you for your word and for your spirit, and we pray now that you would be with us. We pray that you would be at work in and among us. We pray that your spirit would be here on the move, enveloping us, enlivening us, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ and drawing our hearts and our minds toward you. So would you be with us now and bless us and use this time to build us up that we may become more like Jesus to your glory and for our growth. We ask all this through Christ our Lord. Amen. What do the doubts in your life sound like? Uh, if you've ever met with a, like a therapist and done any internal family systems therapy, you might have you done an exercise where you come to know different parts of yourself or different, maybe almost like different personas that live within you. These are like little, little selves that developed early in your childhood that had a reason for existing, but as they get power later in life, if you don't retire them, they start to run your life in ways that are kind of weird and unhealthy. Like maybe you have an inner liar who shows up as a defense mechanism, right? Or you have like an inner uh, kid in a candy store who's always drawn to the things that are exciting and new and therefore you're not dealing with the things that are mundane that require your executive function and what have you and what have you. I want you to befriend right now your inner doubter. Who is this person? The doubter that lives within you. What does this doubter sound like? What's the script? When this person shows up, what, what, are the, what are the phrases, what are the words that, that emerge? Is it, maybe all this Christianity stuff is just made up. Maybe this is all just like a big fairy tale that we get together and rehearse together. And maybe it is, maybe Karl Marx was right. Maybe this is the opiate of the masses that we just apply to our lives because it feels good. Or maybe your inner doubter is more of an intellectual who likes to think about like, man, 
this ancient Bible is so old and weird. And it's how reliable is it really? And we're talking about the Exodus story. And does it really match all of the archaeological records and all this stuff? What, what does your inner doubter sound like? For many of us, it's probably even less sophisticated. It's just more like, eh. Is it worth it? I kind of just want to do what I want. Moses shows us a little bit of his inner doubter in this text. And it's helpful for us to get to know his doubter self because I think it can help us see ours as well. And I think it might provide something for us because on one hand, Christians can often be weird about doubt, right? Doubt can make us feel anxious where we feel like if it's there, maybe faith isn't, as if doubt were the opposite of faith. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Faith is trust. If faith were certainty, maybe doubt would be the opposite of faith. And if we take an approach where rational certainty is what faith is all about, then no wonder we become anxious anytime we feel that pesky little doubter rearing its head in ourselves or in our neighbor. But faith is first and foremost about trusting the living God. It's a relationship of trust. And inside of a relationship of trust, there's all kinds of stuff that can be confusing, unclear, challenging, difficult. And so doubt and faith often do travel together in our lives in a way that should not freak us out. But we also shouldn't give our inner doubter the keys to the car and allow this person to drive. Because our inner doubter, if we, if we hand over the reins to our inner doubter, where we end up is in a profoundly cynical place. Our doubter, our inner doubter doesn't have what it takes to lead us in a way where we actually land in a place of flourishing. It might play an important role, but it's not sufficient. And so we actually need to befriend this character in ourselves so that we actually know how to relate to this person. So we actually need to be, so we can grow through it and beyond it. And as Moses's encounter with the living God and his time of doubt brought him to a place of going with God where God would lead, I submit to you that what you and I need today is an encounter with the living God who makes himself known in Jesus. Jesus, our new and greater Moses, who leads us on this new and greater exodus, not out of simply enslavement in Egypt into a promised land in the Middle East, like the Israelites were going on so many years ago, but this exodus out of our enslavement to even sin and death and selfishness and greed, all of the things where we live trapped, stuck against God, away from God, against one another, away from one another out of our aloneness, out of our stuckness, into a life of communion with God and one another, into a life of wholeness, into a life of holiness, into a life of joy, prayerful, worshipful, faithful, hopeful life together. This is where human flourishing is found in God. And this is the journey that Jesus leads us on if we'll go with him. And today, to help us get there, to help us take next steps on that journey, we have this particular episode from the story of Exodus. And as we've already said, we're, we're, we're reading Exodus this fall as a way to let this story sweep us up, right? 
As Joan Didion said, as we, as we said in that first week, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. We live out of a kind of script that provides for us clues about what we should do next. We live out of these stories we tell ourselves to make sense of our lives, our experiences, our desires. We tell ourselves stories in order to live. And as we've already seen thus far in our series, the stories we receive shape profoundly the stories we tell. And so we're practicing this fall, receiving the story of Exodus. And we're pulling that story of Exodus all the way forward through the scriptures to, the, to Jesus in the New Testament. We're refracting it through the prism of Jesus. And we're gazing upon the story in all of its beauty to allow us to see our lives more clearly, to see God more clearly, and even our circumstances that we might, as we walk forth from here out into the world, into our lives, into our relationships and our neighborhoods and our workplaces, that we might actually live out of a different kind of story than the worldly ones we typically tell ourselves. That we would live out of the story of Jesus a story where God is making all things new, a story where God moves toward us in love, a story where God is actually embracing us by his grace and remaking us and transforming us and moving all of his creation toward the glorious end for which it was made. Life and health and peace and justice flourishing. And at the moments of our lives, we would recognize are connected to that horizon that the choices we make about how to spend our time and how to talk to our neighbor and how to spend our money or save it or give it or how we vote or how we choose to use our time as we are on the clock or off the clock, that all of these things are connected to what God is doing in the world and that he's called you to be part of it. He's called you to participate, to join him in the great work of renewal through love. Now, Moses is called in a very overt way, right? There's this bush and it's on fire, but it's not burning. And so Moses finds himself over there. We've been in this episode now for, this is our third week, part three of a rather extended dialogue between Moses and the Lord at the burning bush. And Moses has found out there that, that this God, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, wants Moses to go to the Pharaoh of Egypt, who's like the most powerful person in the world, and he wants Moses to go to Pharaoh to lead the people of Israel out of enslavement there. And Moses has just been nothing but objections thus far. That will continue in, our, in the episode today. Moses, first, he's like, well, who am I to, who's, who, when I, when I ask who sent me, like, who should I say? And the Lord reveals his name to Moses, right? I am. We saw that last week. Well, now Moses continues to protest. And his third objection is the first one that appears in our text here. And it's this, it's just, they won't believe me. They, the people of God, Israel, the Israelites enslaved in Egypt, they're not going to listen to me. They, they're not going to believe that you in fact have sent me. And so God gives Moses these signs, these three signs to attest to the legitimacy of Moses' calling. And these are signs that are for Moses at this point, right? To, to prove to Moses that God is going to make his testimony credible to the people. So what are these signs? 
The first one is he turns Moses' shepherd's staff into a snake. What is he doing here? Well, the snake is the sign of Pharaoh's power and divine authority in Egypt. Picture a Pharaoh in your mind. We're all picturing like King Tut's sarcophagus or something, right? You're picturing the cobra head, right, of the crown. The cobra head was the sign of Egyptian divine authority. And so to turn the, the staff into the snake is a direct confrontation with the Pharaoh's own claim to legitimate power and authority. Furthermore, to turn the thing into a snake and then grab that snake by the tail, have you ever grabbed a snake by the tail? Don't. That is a terrible way to grab a snake. If you ever need to grab a snake, you get one of those sticks with the little hook thing and you put it at the back of the snake's head so that it doesn't bite you and then you pinch at the back of the head. To grab a snake by the tail, that's only something you would do if you're not afraid at all of its bite. So the Lord turns Moses' staff into the symbol of Pharaoh's own divine authority and then he's like, grab it by the tail. And so Moses grabs it by the tail and it turns back into the staff. It's symbolizing God's authority over everything. It's symbolizing the authority of this Lord who's sending Moses over even the authority of the biggest, baddest ruler in the world. Then he gives the second sign, right? And he says, put your hand inside. And his hand becomes leprous. And then he puts it back in and his hand is healed. Um, this may be a sign of what's about to come with God's authority over all of the things in the plagues, you know, where the, the, the suffering that's going to come and the deliverance from suffering, or it might simply be a sign of what the Lord is about to do to Israel. Take an unclean people and make them clean. The leprous hand was an unclean hand. And so to be healed of the leprosy, as we see Jesus do in the New Testament, is to take something that was ceremonially unclean and to make it clean. And what the Lord is about to do is he's about to redeem his people out of enslavement for himself. And he's about to set them apart so that their life together may be ordered around God, that they might live together in a way that fits God's design, God's wisdom, God's will for their life, and that they would bear witness to the world of the character of God. He's going to make his unclean people clean. And then he gives this third sign or if they're still not willing to listen, you can do this. He says, take some of the water from the Nile and pour it out and it turns to blood, right? Now this sign is a little different from the first two because this one's not actually performed here for Moses. This one's just described here, but it will be performed for the people. This is actually a preview of the first plague that's going to come in chapter seven. It symbolizes God's power over the Egyptian, God, the Egyptian gods, the Egyptian nation, whose life force is the Nile River. For the Nile River, for that water, that water of life to turn to blood would be a judgment and a death sentence for the people. And so God gives these three signs to Moses as a way to help him appreciate how God can make his testimony credible that Moses, his believability with the people isn't entirely on him, but God will do things that attest to his credibility. 
But Moses isn't done protesting. His fourth objection comes in verse 10. And he says, I'm not eloquent. I'm not eloquent. And interestingly, this is where I would think, I would expect God to kind of have some sort of, um, I don't know, stern words for Moses, like stop protesting. But instead, God's like willing to work with him. He's like, I'll tell you what, let's, um, let's get your brother Aaron, the Levite, and we'll have him come in and he'll be your spokesperson. He's a, he's a good speaker. And uh, you know what? He's coming and he'll be glad to see you if you go, go out to meet him. What, here's how it'll work. You'll be like God to him and he'll be like the mouthpiece. So Moses will speak to Aaron, representing God to Aaron, and then Aaron will speak to the people. This is not an equal partnership arrangement. Moses is still the one whom God has chosen. But Moses, who's, you know, by his own description, not very good at talking, um, God's allowing him to lean on his brother. And what God says to Moses in this moment is literally, I will be with your mouth. Like this, remember when, when, when Moses first protested and he says, Lord, who am I that I would go to Pharaoh and lead your people out of slavery in Egypt? The response of the Lord wasn't, oh, you're going to do great. You've got this. I've checked your references. You totally check all the boxes and you're good. His response was very simple. I will be with you. The effectiveness of the mission is fully dependent on the presence and the activity of the Lord. It's not on Moses. And here... In a very similar way, as Moses is all worried about his speech and his eloquence, the Lord's response is literally, I will be with your mouth. See, one of Moses' problems is that he's putting himself way too much at the center of the work. He's so caught up in himself and his own limits, what he can't do, that he, he actually thinks that the mission will succeed or fail based on his performance. But what Moses has to learn is the same thing that we see others learn all throughout Scripture in what we call these call narratives, where we've seen it with prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah. We've seen it with uh, figures like Gideon or Samuel or Joshua. What they all have to learn is that salvation belongs to the Lord. It is God who will do it. God calls people to join him in his work. God works through the instrumentality of human beings, always has. But never has God allowed the human limitations to thwart what it is that he will do. Moses is objecting because he fancies himself too important for the work. He doesn't understand that the Lord can drive a straight blow with a crooked stick. And then we come to Moses' fifth objection. He's no longer appealing to any of his own limitations. Finally, he gets to his fifth objection in verse 13. Please send someone else. Uh, it's, it's basically just, um, nope. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I don't, I don't want to. Uh, and this is where we actually see the Lord get angry for the first time. It's, you know, it's no longer is Moses making some case why he's not the right person for the job. Now it's just like, all right, I don't want to do it, right? I don't want to do it. He's not even making an excuse. But the Lord, um, he sets it up. 
He gets angry, but he, he engages Moses. And the conversation ends kind of strangely, right? <laughs> Don't forget your staff. It's a weird interaction. It really is. It's a weird interaction. Um, but the staff is going to be this important thing that Moses is going to use as he's encountering Pharaoh, as he's doing the plagues, as he's going to part the sea. The staff will be an important tool. And what we see all throughout this, as these signs and wonders are done for Moses, and as we'll see signs and wonders done to, dis you know, to display the power of the Lord, God continues to use the ordinary things to do the extraordinary God uses these created things, like a staff or a snake, right? He uses these created things to demonstrate his authority as creator. And he uses these weak instruments, even like doubting Moses, to lead an exodus. He uses ordinary people and ordinary things to do the miraculous because he's the creator because he's the one who's made us and the world and everything in it. He's the one who holds all things together. And he's the one who can use the stuff of our lives to do far more than we could ask or imagine. Moses is going to get a front row seat to see the power of God displayed, the extraordinary through ordinary means. And as you kind of read the story forward to Jesus and you realize that the story that the Exodus is part of, this larger story of what God is doing in the world, which is a story that enfolds even our lives and this right now situation for all of us, this story of what God is up to in the world really is going to ultimately center on Jesus, right? And what Jesus does, when he, when he arrives on the scene, he too will be a man attested by God with signs and wonders and all the things, right? The spirit of the Lord anoints Jesus for the work that's his. And you hear the very voice of the father. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And then when you see Jesus after he's been crucified and raised, he's the one who is raised from the dead. And he's saying like, look, poke my side, feel my wounds. It's true. Feel me, know me, eat fish with me. God is doing something miraculous in me. Your inner doubter probably is more focused on the what, the why, and the how long questions than on the who questions would be my guess. My inner doubter, when my inner doubter raises his head and speaks out, it's about circumstances. It's about the cost of discipleship. It's about the objectionable things. It's about the, the behavior of fellow Christians, right? About things that, that are off-putting. It's rarely about Jesus. And often we want what answers to our what questions, or we want how long answers to our how long questions, or we, you know, we, want the, we want why answers to our why questions. But when God meets us in person in the world in Jesus, he gives us the ultimate who answer to all of our doubts. I am the way, the truth, and the life, says Jesus. And we get to then come into a place where we sing, and though I may not know the way I go, oh, I know my guide. I don't know about you, but when, when I find myself in a place of doubt, and I find myself maybe wanting to feed those doubting lines and questions. I'm wanting to give more airtime in my head and my heart to those kinds of concerns. Rarely in those moments am I fixed on Jesus. 
Rarely in those moments am I drawn to engaging the living God in prayer. I'm just me in my head, and all of the I will be with you stuff feels a million miles away. I'm on my own to figure it out. But the promise of God is that I will be with you. The calling of God is to get involved in what God is doing in the world, which is to be a participant in that great exodus movement out of our Egypts and into the promised land of life with him and one another, where we're living in the light and the truth and we're living in love, where we're opening our lives and surrendering to his love, where we're we're recognizing our own need for a rescuer. And not only our own need, but God's actual provision of it where we see ourselves as the ones in need of redemption and therefore as the ones who are bearing the good news that God's answer to that need is a yes. And the yes answer's name is Jesus. As you think about your week and what it will involve, the decisions that are yours to make or um, the tasks that are yours to accomplish, the priorities that will be yours to set, what would it look like for you this week to go into those decisions with Jesus, to go into those conversations with Jesus, to go into those conversations with a God who says, I will be with your mouth. What will you say? To go into those hard relationships with a God who says that we love because he first loved us. As I have loved you, so love one another. Where are you stuck? Where are you alone? Where does that inner doubter need to meet Jesus this week? Friends, the good news is that God, the God who's made you, the God who's created all things, the God who loves you to the core of your being and knows you is nearer than you know. He's better than we can ask or imagine. And he is very real. May God give us grace this week to take the next steps on our own Exodus journeys in and with Jesus, trusting the promise, I will be with you. Let us pray. Our God of glory and might, we thank you that you are also the God of love and friendship. God, we pray that you would meet us right where we are, that you would minister to our souls and to our minds, I pray that you would help us to rest in you, knowing your nearness, knowing your friendship, knowing your love. God, we thank you that we don't have to freak out because of our doubts. We thank you that we don't have to have it all figured out to be a people of faith. And I pray that you would help us to truly believe and rest in that and give us the grace we need to fix our eyes upon you, to give ourselves more and more fully over to your loving care, your provision, your guidance, your reign, your liberating love in our lives. Lead us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.